It's Luke 9, 1 through 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Father, we pray tonight that with different hearts than Herod had, we would try to see Jesus, that you would help us. And we pray tonight as we were singing that you would speak, O Lord, and renew our minds and help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. So speak to us now from Luke chapter 9. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story about a mission to be accomplished. And everybody loves stories about missions to be accomplished. We are drawn to those scenes where the agent, you know, is called into a private office and handed a manila envelope filled with data and maps and photographs and top secret files. And we love to see that and to hear his boss explain to him all the obstacles that he's going to have to face. And we love then to watch the movie and see if he is going to be able to accomplish the task. That's why people love movies like Mission Impossible and all the 007 movies. It's why evening television lineups are filled with detective shows where they're trying to accomplish a mission and solve a problem. It's why lots of popular video games are about conquering territories and undertaking grandiose operations. It's also why young boys in Sunday school are particularly intrigued by the story in Numbers 13 about 12 spies sent out by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan. The first time you hear that story, you're sitting there wondering, will they make it? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to complete the mission? We're drawn to stories about missions to be accomplished. And we usually end up on the edge of our seats rooting for the agents that have been given such an important task, whatever it may be. And with that in mind, what a story for the silver screen Luke 9, 1 through 9 might make if Luke would have filled in the gaps between verses 6 and 7 and told us what actually happened while they were out fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave them. What an amazing series of events must have unfolded as these 12 disciples went from village to village fulfilling the mission that God had given them. It must have been an extraordinary thing to be a part of. And it would have been surely made for television had we been able to follow them all the way through their journeys. We have questions like, how many people believed? And how many times did they have to shake the dust off of their feet when they left the village? What sorts of snags and near misses did they encounter along the way? All of those would be fun questions to have the answers to. 
And I'm not sure why Luke doesn't fill us in on a little bit more of the details of what actually happened as the disciples went throughout the villages. But I suspect that it may be this. I suspect that the Holy Spirit has only given us the few details recorded here in Luke chapter 9, possibly because God does not want us merely to enjoy someone else's adventure, but to join in the mission ourselves. In other words, the goal of reading this particular episode of Mission Impossible is not that we would be entertained. The goal is not that we would find out all that the disciples accomplished, but that we would join with them in accomplishing what God would have us accomplish. That we would join with the disciples, not in the villages of Judea and Galilee necessarily, but in the villages of Pleasant Ridge and Reading and Amberley and Loveland and Westchester and Milford and Westwood and Deer Park and Clifton and so on. That we would be accomplishing the same mission as these disciples as we make our way through the schools and the warehouses and the hospitals and the office complexes and the cyberspace where we all spend so much of our time. I know it sounds cliche to say that we're on a mission that almost sounds a little far-fetched and silly, doesn't it? Because none of us have manila envelopes filled with maps and photos and, and such like, do we? None of us are moving around the city of Cincinnati covertly. We don't have any top secret files on our laptops, I hope. None of us are agents of any kind, really. We're actually just moms and dads and teachers and doctors and secretaries and administrative personnel and managers and machine operators and cooks and custodians and contractors and all those kinds of things. And yet... Isn't it true that all of us in those kitchens and classrooms and warehouses and offices and examination rooms where we spend our days, isn't it true that we're actually supposed to be on a mission and one that's far more significant and momentous than anything the CIA could ever dream up? Isn't that true? Let's not forget that the last thing Jesus did before he ascended to his Father's right hand was indeed to leave his followers with a mission. And not just any mission, an enormously challenging and earth-shaking and border-crossing, eternally significant, sometimes dangerous mission, namely, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. That's a big deal. Or as he said in Matthew 28:19, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. That's why we're here. And that's an incredibly large and significant assignment. James Bond should be so lucky. The CIA should be jealous of us. We have an important task. We really do. And as we come to Luke 9 this evening, we should realize that the mission that is assigned in these verses to the disciples was simply a precursor of the mission that Jesus would eventually call all of his followers to join. This is the first run at the task to which all of us are now in some way or another called. Luke 9 is simply a run-up to Acts 1 and to Matthew 28. And because it is, I believe there's a great deal of help to be gleaned from the commissioning of 12 men that we find here to the Christian mission. And so I want to look at this passage, this mission that Jesus calls these disciples to, just under four simple headings tonight. So think with me. First, 
about the assignment. The assignment, verses 1 and 2. What did Jesus give his disciples to do here in Luke 9? What was inside the manila envelope, so to speak? What was the mission that they were to accomplish? Well, in verses 1 and 2, it's quite straightforward, isn't it? They were to do simply two things. To proclaim the gospel, or excuse me, to proclaim the kingdom of God, verse 2, and to perform healing. Proclaim the kingdom of God and perform healing. Straightforward, isn't it? Now, we know from experience that that's not necessarily easy work. But nevertheless, that was the straightforward task that the disciples were called to. And really, it's a task that you and I are called to as well. And we'll see that. So let's think together about this twofold assignment to which we and the disciples have been called. First, the disciples were to go about and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? That's not a phrase that we use all the time today. The kingdom of God. Proclaim the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, we get a major clue in verse 6 when we're told that the disciples began going throughout the villages preaching the gospel. Now that's a phrase that is a little more familiar to us, isn't it? Preaching the gospel. That's how we would normally say it. And that's what Jesus meant in verse 2 when he charged the twelve with preaching or proclaiming the kingdom of God. In this instance, the kingdom of God and the gospel are synonymous. He wanted them to go out and to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. And he wants us to do the same. And what is the gospel? Well, let's just pause on that for a moment. We've been reminding ourselves for a number of years, haven't we, that the simple gospel message consists of four big truths. God, sin, Christ, and response. God, sin, Christ, and response. I hope God sort of nails those things into place for you tonight if he hasn't already. First, the gospel says there is only one true and living God. And that this God created us and keeps us alive every day and loves us and has given us every inducement to follow his commandments, commandments which are not burdensome, but which are actually good for us. But secondly, the gospel announces that we have not honored this God as we ought. We've not properly given him thanks. We've not obeyed his commandments. We've lived to please ourselves and not our creator. In short, the gospel proclaims that all have sinned and that the wages of sin is eternal judgment and death. Thirdly, the gospel says that because God loves his creatures, He desires to rescue them from the punishment that they have brought on themselves by their sins. And therefore, he himself became fully human in the person of Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And because he never sinned, he had no judgment hanging over his own head. And he did not have to die. And yet die he did, willingly absorbing the punishment that we Deserve, And he rose again on the third day as evidence that he really was who he said he was. That he was no mere mortal, but the God-man giving his life for us. And then fourthly, the gospel requires a response. Because Jesus died for our sins and rose again by God's power, we too can be dead to sin and alive to God if we respond by repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus, if we will turn from sin and entrust ourselves to Jesus, 
then we will be forgiven of our sins and we will have been made alive to God or born again to a whole new way of living with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As briefly as I can state it, God, sin, Christ, response. And that's the message that Jesus sent the disciples to proclaim and the message that he wants us to be proclaiming as well. Now, of course, these 12 men were preaching these things before the works of the cross and resurrection were completed. So we don't know exactly how much they understood or to exactly what depth they were able to communicate these truths. But somehow the 12 went throughout the villages in verse 6 and preached what gospel they knew. And though none of you is called yet as a full-time missionary or preacher, there's a very real sense in which each of us needs to follow in their steps, isn't there? Each of us ought to arrive at work each day or at school each day or at the ball game expecting that God will provide us with opportunities to proclaim the good news and praying that he will. And we ought also in various ways to be proactive about finding those kinds of opportunities, looking for them, taking advantage of them, whether it's starting a Bible study at lunch or inviting some unbelieving friends for dinner or placing an evangelistic book in the hands of a friend whom you know likes to read or a hundred other ways that you could think of. But however we get to the villages and their residents, the calling for us is the same in many ways as it was for these men. He sent them out to these villages to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel. And then we're also reminded in verse 2 that our assignment has to do not only with our lips, but with our hands. That is to say, not only are we to speak good news, but we are also to perform good deeds. For didn't Jesus also command the twelve to heal the sick? He said in verse 2, proclaim the kingdom of God and perform healing. Now, it's true that in verse 1, the disciples were given by Jesus an unusual ability to heal that he does not seem to grant to every believer. In other words, on this early gospel mission, the disciples had a unique authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, an authority that's not part and parcel, it would seem, of normal Christianity. So we can't do exactly what they did, but I think the principle is still the same. Along with preaching powerful and compassionate gospel news, the followers of Jesus were also to demonstrate the power and compassion of that good News. They were to preach the power and compassion of the gospel and they were to demonstrate the power and compassion of the gospel in the way that they lived and the way that they loved. And so are we. No, we're not usually given the power to heal people's diseases, although we are told to pray for them. But we do, if we really belong to Jesus, have divine power pulsing through us in any number of other ways, don't we? We do have the Holy Spirit just like they did, don't we? So our neighbors and co-workers ought to see the power of God at work in us, just as these villagers saw in the disciples. They ought to see in us, for instance, a power to resist temptation that's not merely human. They ought to see in us the power of effectual prayer. In other words, people ought to come to us, as we've sometimes seen happen, and say to us, would you pray for me? I know you have a direct line to heaven. 
so that we can say to them, yeah, I do have a direct line to heaven, but it's only because heaven has come down to me in the person of Jesus. It's not my power, it's his. And if you trust him, you'll have direct conversation with God as well. People ought to know that there's something powerful happening in our lives that's not just us. And of course, our co-workers and our neighbors ought also to see in us the same kind of compassion that surely the villagers saw in the disciples as they went about healing. Even if we aren't given authority to heal, and even if God does not answer our prayers always for healing the way we would like Him to, our friends ought to see that we deeply care for them and that we long for their well-being just the same. In other words, we ought to be the ones who are at the hospital when a coworker is sick. We should be the ones volunteering to bring lost people meals and to help with their kids or their laundry. We ought to be the ones, the first ones to arrive at the tailgate of the U-Haul when new neighbors move in on our street. So let's make sure we get these things right in verses 1 and 2. Let's make sure we proclaim the gospel by lip and by life. Let's remember... On one hand, that it will do no good to be the world's best neighbors if we never tell anyone how to be right with God. But let's be certain, on the other hand, that all of our telling will almost always fall on deaf ears if our co-workers and friends cannot see the power and compassion of Jesus at work in the way we live. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. That's our mission. That's the assignment that we have. And now secondly, consider the equipment. The assignment and then the equipment in verses 3 through 5. Now as you know, going back to our illustration, whenever an agent is sent on a special mission in the movies, the camera usually zooms in on a briefcase that's filled with cash and passports and weaponry and so on. And that's not just in the movies, is it? It's real life. When someone is sent on a mission, the boss provides them with all the necessary gear and money to get them in and out of the places where they need to go. Now, sometimes it's a briefcase full of cash. Wouldn't that be nice if our bosses gave us that? But usually it's a rental car and an expense account and a hotel reservation. But however dramatic or mundane... People aren't usually sent out on an important assignment without some equipment. And that's what makes this particular mission so unique. Because Jesus sent these men out with these instructions in verse 3. Take nothing for your journey. Neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Take nothing, he said. And then he told them in verse 4 simply to stay in the local people's homes. So in essence, Jesus sent these men out on the most important mission that they could possibly be sent out on with no equipment. He sent them into the enemy's territory a bit like David went to fight Goliath with no armor on at all. Jesus sent these special agents out with no hotel reservations and no cash in hand and nothing in their briefcases, empty-handed. And the question then is, what are we to make of that? What are we to make of this empty-handedness? What are we to learn from it? Well, again, before we can learn anything, we have to recognize that there is a slight disconnect between the disciples' circumstances and our own. Because Jesus does not command all Christians to go 
into the mission field empty-handed, does he? In fact, it's only on this particular preliminary mission that he places these limitations. And then on top of that, most of us are not actually going any place away from home to share the gospel yet. So we don't we don't have to worry about the things the disciples would have had to worry about. We don't have to worry where we're going to stay night by night. We don't have to worry about where we're going to get food. We don't have to worry about whether we're going to have enough clothing for the journey. Our mission in sharing the gospel is often as simply as driving to work and back. And therefore, we might be tempted to think this whole bit about taking neither a staff nor a bag nor a second pair of clothing really has no modern application. But is that true? I don't think it is. We need to ask, I think, not just what Jesus told them to do, but why. Why did Jesus send these disciples out the way he did? Why did he send them out empty-handed? What was he trying to accomplish, or what was he trying to teach? Well, when we read this same passage as the Apostle Matthew records it over in Matthew 10, we discover that the reason the disciples were sent out empty-handed was because God himself was going to provide what they needed as they went from place to place. God himself would provide along the way. So Jesus sent these men out on this weighty assignment with no equipment and no money and no place to say so that they would have to trust in God every place they went. And as an aside that may or may not have to do with sharing the gospel, when Jesus seems to take away some things from us from time to time, the lesson's probably the same. God sometimes takes away our crutches so that we will have to walk by faith. Nevertheless, Jesus sent out the twelve with no equipment so that they would have to trust in God. And it seems to me that one particular way that they would have had to have trusted in God would have been to have complete trust in their message. Jesus sent them out empty-handed so they would have to trust in God and particularly in the message of God that they were sent with. For their message was actually the only equipment that they were afforded in these gospel journeys. That and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. In other words, when they went from place to place, by design... They were not going to show up in these villages looking or dressing or lodging or acting like important Bible teachers. All they had, as it were, was God behind them and his word in their hands. And perhaps Jesus set the situation up that way intentionally so they would be forced to trust in only those two things that they had the power of God behind them, and the word of God, the message of the gospel in their hands and in their mouth. Perhaps Jesus sent them out with no natural advantages so that they and their hearers would realize that the gospel preached in the power of the Spirit was enough. And that's an important lesson for you and I to grasp. Wherever it is that God sends you on his gospel mission, the gospel itself preached in the power of the Holy Spirit is all the equipment you really need. Let me say that again. I think that's the most important thing tonight. The gospel itself preached in the power of the Holy Spirit is all the equipment you really need. 
We don't need anything else in order to complete our mission. This good news, preached and lived out in the power of the Spirit, can change the world. Witness the explosive growth of Christianity among poor and persecuted Chinese people meeting in houses. Witness some of my Ethiopian pastor friends who, with no computers and no money and no vehicles and very slim pastoral libraries, are powerfully preaching the right gospel in the midst of a Muslim stronghold city and planting churches there with no equipment. Because the gospel is their equipment and the gospel is our equipment. And while God often graciously gives us numerous tools to use in our gospel work, what we're learning here is that we don't have to have any of those things. Just to put it in modern terms, you don't have to have a gospel tract in your purse or in your wallet to share the gospel at work. You don't have to have books or an electronic resource of some kind or an exciting event to which you can invite your friends. You don't have to particularly be gifted in evangelism or be good with words or be quick on your feet. All those things can be wonderful helps if and when God grants them, but none of them are essential. Our equipment, our only essential equipment is the gospel preached in the power of the Spirit. And on a church level, we don't necessarily have to have a church budget to preach the gospel. We don't have to have a church website or building. We don't have to be hip and happening. We don't have to have any cutting-edge programs. Some of those things can be nice and are helpful at times, but all we absolutely have to have are people who are willing and who know the truth and who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God can do great things through us. That's encouraging to me. No matter what advantages or gifts Jesus may or may not allow us to have, the mission is the same. Go out and proclaim the gospel. And for that mission, all we need is the gospel and the Holy Spirit. They are our necessary equipment. Now thirdly, and briefly, let's turn our attention from the equipment to the deployment. The deployment on the mission or of the mission. Verse 6 After Jesus had given the twelve their assignment and their equipment, or lack thereof, they deployed. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In other words, it's simple. After Jesus had given them their assignment, these twelve men actually went out and fulfilled the mission. They did what Jesus called them to do. I know that sounds elementary. I hope for you it is, but it needs pointing out. These men didn't merely cheerfully and attentively listen to Jesus' instructions. No, they actually went out and did what he said. And I point that out tonight because there's a very real temptation for you and I to listen to Jesus' instructions here, to listen to this message and perhaps to appreciate it and agree with what's being said, but then to walk out of the building and do little or nothing about it. Not just because we are hard-hearted, but just our thoughts go a million directions when we leave this building. And so the temptation is for us to forget everything that we've heard and to show back up at work tomorrow morning simply because that's what we do every Thursday morning. 
and not because we have realized afresh from Luke chapter 9 that we are God's special emissaries in that office or that warehouse or that hospital or that school or that laundry room. The temptation will be for you to be like the people in Ezekiel's day about whom God said to the prophet, Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. Ezekiel 33:32. For they hear your words, but do not practice them. So I plead with you tonight not to commit that folly. Don't be hearers of the word only. This sermon is not meant to be a work of art for your enjoyment, but a heavenly commission. This passage is not a mere story. It is a call from on high for us to join the apostles and accept the mission that we've been given. So please, go back to your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your schools tomorrow with a new vision for why God has you there. Go back expecting and praying toward and looking for and taking the opportunities that God will give you to be an ambassador of the cross. It's not that you have to have a thousand tracts and give one to every person you see or that you have to share the gospel so many times, but that you go back expecting and praying and looking for and taking advantage of the opportunities that God puts in your path to be His emissary, to be His agent in the places where your days carry you. Begin tonight with the apostles going throughout the villages, whatever the villages are for you, preaching the gospel. And it's possible God may have laid on your heart this evening some specific name or face or maybe some particular gospel opportunity that you know is there for you. And if he has, I want you, as it were, to ask him to stamp that into your conscience and into your heart so that you make sure that whatever assignment he is giving you turns into a deployment. And that's the third point, the deployment And now let's consider finally the results. Verses 7 through 9, the results of this mission. What was the upshot of this brief and preliminary gospel mission? What were the results? Did anyone believe? Well, neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke gives us a great deal of detail, as I mentioned. We don't know how many, if any, real converts were made on this preaching tour on this mission trip. But what we are told in verses 7 through 9 is that the preaching and healing of the twelve made a profound impact on this man Herod. He liked to call himself king. The gospel message made Herod, verse 7, perplexed. Verse 9, nervous. And probably not a little agitated as well. He had a guilty conscience. And Luke points out that he was perplexed and nervous and maybe agitated probably for this reason, because Herod's response is quite typical. This is what lots of people do. They respond just like Herod did. When we carry the gospel to our neighbors and co-workers and family members, some of them gloriously will believe right away perhaps. And we thank God for that and pray for that. But more often than not, A person's initial encounters with the gospel of Jesus are going to leave them perplexed and nervous and maybe a little bit agitated. Maybe agitated with the one who's sharing with them. 
Sometimes their responses may be so strongly in the negative that we have to, as it were, shake the dust off of our feet as a testimony against them, verse 5, and then get out of the way. Jesus warns us of that possibility, and Luke tells us of Herod's nervousness so that we will know what to expect. Namely, not everyone is going to fall down and worship Jesus the first time we open up the book of Romans with them, are they? We know that. Some of them, hopefully as necessary steps on the journey toward eventual faith, are going initially to be perplexed or nervous or agitated agitated or downright angry. But we mustn't be thrown off by those responses. We're told here that that's the kind of thing that happens. Nurses don't get cold feet about giving you a necessary vaccine even though they know that, quote, you may experience some discomfort when the needle is inserted. Right? It's good for you. They're not nervous about it. Personal trainers aren't wishy-washy about making you do another set of ten repetitions in spite of the fact that they know you're going to wake up sore tomorrow morning. It's good for you. And therefore, neither should we be worried that the message about Jesus may initially draw some negative reviews. That's just the way the gospel works. But it's good for people. Indeed, if the gospel never makes anyone nervous or agitated, it's likely because we aren't sharing it as straightforwardly or as clearly as we should be. The gospel, by its very nature, makes people perplexed and nervous and sometimes agitated and even angry. But it's also the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So trust the message. Some of the people you share it with, in spite of their initial reaction, will someday be in heaven worshiping Jesus right alongside of you. And knowing that should make the awkward moments and the rebuffs worth the trouble. Trust the message. Fulfill the mission and trust that God will in his time surely bring about the results. Now let me close by quoting the words of Mordecai, the Jewish hero in the book of Esther. When his cousin Esther was faced with a great challenge and with not a little bit of uncertainty because of the assignment that God had given to her, Mordecai reminded her that she, only she, could do what God had called her to do. Only Esther could fulfill Esther's mission. And so Mordecai said to her in Esther 4.14, Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? And the same kind of question could be asked to each one of us. Who knows whether or not you have been placed in that workplace or on that ball team or in that apartment building or on that street or in that classroom for such a time as this. Who knows whether God has placed you there so that someone in that same place where He has placed you will hear the good news and believe. In fact, I'm convinced that that's precisely why God has many of us in the positions where we are in. I'm convinced that you all are God's special ambassadors and emissaries in the various places where your days take you. You are God's agents. With God's gospel assignment and with God's gospel equipment placed 
precisely in the places where God would have you for such a time as this. So I ask you, when you finally someday leave that workplace or that ball team or that apartment building or that classroom or that neighborhood, indeed, when you someday finally leave this world, will God be able to look down on the effort that you gave and on the gospel that you proclaimed, regardless of the apparent results, and say to you, mission accomplished, 